Andrew Harrison. I'm the producer of Romaniacs. We recorded this week's episode while the debate on the meaning of the vote was actually taking place, and you can hear us tapping away at Twitter to try and find out exactly what's going on. So have a listen and see what we were doing on Wednesday afternoon, and stay tuned until the very end when you'll hear the twist that determines the future and makes a lot of what we talk about seem a little bit out of date. Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, the podcast that actually delivers on its promises. Recently named one of the Observer's 10 best political podcasts. As with Ed Miliband, our old, <laughs> our old nemesis. <laughs> he, he was higher up the page as well. I'm Dorian Linsky. This week we'll be looking at Grieve versus May round two, Won't Get Fooled Again. Uh, we're actually <laughs> recording in the middle of uh, parliamentary shenanigans. After the Lords kicked the meaningful vote back down to the Commons on Monday with yet another humiliating defeat, how will the PM face down the aggrieved grieve when she's shown her promises aren't worth the paper they're not written on? <laughs> also, while we're in the realm of nonsense, May doubles down on the NHS Brexit bus with a promise of £20 billion investment in the health service. Is there really a Brexit dividend? No. And will the political <laughs> masterstroke finally shut up the Ramonas? No. I've got two of our regulars here with me. Naomi Smith is Chief Operating Officer of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi, how are you? Hey, hey, other than anxiously watching my phone for updates coming out of the comments, I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> fine. Chill. It's a little tense. And Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk. Hi, Ian. Hello. Before we get into the Brexit weeds again, um, what do we make of the sudden attack on Remainers from Corbynite agenda setters this week around Labour Live? In case you missed it, the space for a few days, we had Aaron Bastani, Matt Zalb cousin and Ash Sarkar all saying that Brexit doesn't matter to most people and the worst thing about Brexit is it makes 48% of the country tedious on the internet, something I've never experienced. <laughs> and it culminated in former journalist Paul Mason calling our future our choice a bunch of actual young people, astroturfer elitists. This was after OFOC had the insolence to unfurl a banner reading Stop Backing Brexit in front of Corbyn at Labour Live. Uh, Naomi, were they, were they really thrown out or was that an exaggeration? Oh, you know, I believe that they were. They told me that they were. Um, but I think, you know, the unfurling of the banner was brilliant. And, you know, bravo our friends at OFOC for doing it. And we know from reports in The Guardian that lots of the key Corbyn figures on Twitter are coordinated from Seamus Milne's office. Um, why are they going after Remainers now? Well, they do it quite periodically. And in fact, it's, it's almost <clears throat> useful because it tells you what it is that Seamus Milne thinks needs to be happening right now. Because, of course, they are just human meat puppets for his voice. <laughs> like, that's all that they are. You, when they, you, they now even use the same language over the AstroTurf thing. You know, Bastani uses it and then Mason is using it. So you're just like, literally, he's, he's writing this. Do, like, do, do they allow you to write it themselves, you know, with a broad bullet point yeah. of what you need to say? Or, or do you get to pick the wording? Um, and that's where they are right now. So it does give you some indication of what that wing of the leader's office is thinking. So it, it sort of has some kind of political intelligence usefulness to it, even if it is, of course, incredibly irritating. And we can discuss this at next year's Labour Live, where we'll be hosting the Ramoning Debate Tent and Centrist Dad Disco. <laughs> Book early. <laughs> We have a special guest with us today. James McGorry is the executive director of Open Britain, the campaigning organisation that took over from Stronger In. This week he's in the thick of preparing for the People's March on Saturday. Maybe you're listening to this show on the way there. Who knows? Hi, James. How are you? Welcome. I'm good. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, this is often the last question we ask guests. We're going to ask you first. Um, what's your sense of where we're at with Brexit right now? this second i think it's really interesting in that the one thing almost everybody agrees with is that it's almost it's a total mess that the government are making a complete fist of the negotiations two years on the government haven't even decided amongst themselves what they actually want from this process and theresa may's having to divide her cabinet down into ever small numbers of people until it's just liam fox shouting in a room on his own <laughs> um and they can't sort it out and there's been some really revealing polling on this YouGov did one about 10 days ago now only one in 10 people think that the process is going well. Now, I think there's a long way to go in, in the Brexit debate, but when I've been doing interviews up against leavers, they say, well, no one's going to pull you up on that idea that it's a total mess. So now we need to build on that argument. A total mess of negotiations means Britain's more likely to get a bad deal. And who should have to say on that bad deal? Should it be MPs in Parliament and the government who clearly can't agree amongst themselves? You're seeing yet more confusion uh, reign today where we're following this live and we have no idea what's going on. I think I can speak for us all, all there. And that the only solution to this, in my view, and the view of everybody who's part of it, is to put the final Brexit deal to a people's vote and let the, let the people, let 65 million people, not 650 MPs, decide what's literally the future of our country. 
And how do you feel about this apparently choreographed attack on Remain campaigners uh, from the Corbyn left? Because knowing how long it took you and others to coordinate all these independent groups, it seems pretty outrageous for Paul Mason to call OFOC astroturfing, isn't it? I mean, if you know these 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 guys, they put their hmm. heart and soul to it. I must say, for no or very poor poor money, they are not doing this because they, you know, hate Jeremy Corbyn. Quite quite the opposite. Most of them, if not all of them, are Corbyn supporters. Hmm. They are. They just feel so passionately about about the Brexit issue that it trumps everything else. And they are engaging in what people like Paul Mason uh, have long campaigned for, which is their democratic right to speak the truth to power. Uh, the positive I take from it is I think they look a bit rattled. Um, you know, I think there's a reason why they've come out in quite a coordinated way over the last few days to basically criticise teenagers and young people because they know it's probably the one issue where the leadership and that weird Mason Bastani, you know, rent-a-quote uh, internet mob are completely and utterly out of step with the views of young people in particular, young people full stop, but young Labour supporters mm. in particular. Labour's got a big problem. Um, we saw last week in the by-election they lost 11,000 votes um, in a very Remain vote Lewisham East. Um, and, you know, the main opposition party should not be losing that number of votes at this stage in the parliament when you've got such a weak government. And, you know, Labour's got to pick a side and win it because otherwise, you know, they risk being squeezed from both sides. And you've got two Liberal Democrats on the show this week. And uh, we know full well what that feels like. <laughs> a coalition that might work this time. <laughs> we'll talk about the big march later in the show. And listeners, if you're going, keep an eye out for us in our gorgeous Romaniacs t-shirts. We'll be getting Vox Pops for the next show and doing our best not to get arrested. Before we crack on, a couple of important reminders. <laughs> the next Romaniacs Live is on the horizon and our Patreon backers will be the first to know. So if you want first dibs on tickets and a discount price, why not back Romaniacs on the crowdfunding platform Patreon? You'll also get those chic Romaniacs t-shirts, sturdy Romaniacs mugs and roomy Romaniacs bags, depending on your pledge. But most importantly, you'll get that priceless sense of supporting the fight of our generation. Visit patreon.com slash RomaniacsCast to find out more. And if you enjoy Romaniacs, you might also enjoy our sibling podcast, Big Mouth, an hour of quality pop culture chat with some of Britain's best music and film journalists. This week, they're talking about Public Enemy's classic album, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. Ooh. Plus, a jaw-dropping movie about Glastonbury's infamous Lost Vagueness Field, and lots more. Search for Big Mouth in the Apple Podcasts app, or go to audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. Thanks, Naomi. There are only three certainties in life, death, taxes and Brexit news. <laughs> First up, Theresa May threw a wild card onto the table at the weekend by appearing to honour the infamous £350 million a week pledge of money to the NHS, the bus one. In fact, she beat it, promising £384 million a week or £20 billion by 2024, citing the Brexit dividend as the source of the money. Now, you might say, check matrimoners, time to shut down one of the Observer's top ten best political podcasts. <laughs> Except the plans were immediately scorned as unrealistic, not least because, according to economists like Paul Johnson, the director of notorious Marxist think tank, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, there isn't a Brexit dividend. Brexit is forecast to shrink public finances by £15 billion, and the £9 billion we supposedly saved by leaving is already earmarked for other uses. So it emerged that tax increases, Tory kryptonite, including a freeze on tax-free allowances, would be necessary to fund the move. The Tory MP Sarah Wollaston derided the idea as tosh, and Labour's Tom Watson actually reported the Prime Minister to the Advertising Standards Agency for using misleading graphics, because apparently you can do that. <laughs> and uh, encourage everyone to do so. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi, is there any justifiable way of claiming that a, that a Brexit dividend exists? No. Um, <laughs> End of podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Moving on. And, you know, their own assessments under all Brexit scenarios, as we know, show that we're worse off. Um, and they get away with it because we've got a really partisan media who just keeps spoon-feeding Poor, you know, everybody warm diarrhea, um, and the, the you know the core vote that May and Boris uh, draw upon for support are constantly gathering their news from nasty tabloids, um, and avid Leeds supporters are being insulated from reality. It's just a lie. In why why is she making these uh, these reckless promises? Is it is it entirely short termist? There was some there was some sort of chatter in, in the lobby of well maybe it's you know to placate the Brexiters now because later on she's going to have to make a bunch of concessions. There are lots of rumours swirling around that civil servants think that they've really shifted the cabinet sort of in recent days where we've not been talking about backstoppy stuff to actually go into some kind of customs thing that they previously weren't swingable into and that Theresa May starts needing to sing from their hymn sheet right now to prep them for the sacrifices they're going to make over the next few weeks. I don't know if that's really true. I mean, I do sort of sign up to this idea of that they are 
engage in a battle on identity. And when she says this stuff about we're going to get this money back, there's a Brexit dividend, it is a statement about identity. It is not a statement about the objective world that exists outside of your brain. It is about the tribe that you wish to belong to. So I, I'm not sure how much of it is internal and how much of it is external, but it doesn't really matter, does it? Because nothing is going to stop these guys lying. The truth is of no consequence to them whatsoever. Well, Sam Coates at the time says she wanted to hand Boris Johnson and the Brexiters a, a propaganda win because there's a lot of concessions coming. Right, well, that's along the lines of exactly yeah. the kind of, yeah, yeah. Um, James, how important to the Brexit uh, result was that, that NHS promise? I'm not sure if there was any kind of like hard research that you could do on this, but how, how much did it cut through? I mean, it's very difficult to say what 17 million people voted for and which was most, most important. But um, 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 for, for once, if nothing else, with Dominic Cummings on this one, who said himself in one of his 29,000-word uh, uh, <laughs> right. penned over a six-month period that um, why he was right about everything. Um, but on this case, he said they couldn't have won without the NHS um, promised. There's, there's a reason why they plastered it all over all over the bus. I think it was pivotal. We all know it's a pack of lies. What I find it the most amazing thing is during the campaign, we were faced with a choice. You could either tackle it head on, and for a little while we left it and said, don't engage, it will just raise it up. But in the end, it became such a big issue, we had to mm. tackle it head on and call it out for the lies that it was. But I'm amazed that there are so many rules governing what campaigns and political mm. parties can and cannot do in terms of expenditure, what they can and cannot put on a leaflet, how that leaflet has to be identified to someone, and there is no recourse whatsoever. I mean, I don't really hold much track for the Advertising Standards Authority. It's not really their, their game. Where you can say this is a flat-out lie that's been demonstrated mm. by everybody. Mm. The Office of National Statistics wrote the equivalent of a cease and desist letter to mm. vote leave, mm. saying this is cobblers. Mm. You really shouldn't use it. And there's no recourse. Mm. And the government is now doubling down mm. on that lie. Mm. Um, and there's no recourse mm. here. I don't think the Advertising Standards will go, will go anywhere. It's a real problem in yeah. our politics. And, and the government has now without any shadow of a doubt, saddled themselves to that hardcore leave position. I mean, that's, that's what this does. That it is saying that, yes, we, we own and accept that, that poster from the referendum. The but, whole system, so our whole system is based on this idea that you would have shame or there would be some consequence to you from saying something that then a guy from the IFS would get up and go, that's bollocks. Yeah. And the truth is, at the point that you stop caring, that whole thing falls apart because there is no authority. On it. And, and to be fair, it's hard to imagine how the authority would work. You know, at what point is someone saying a lie? You know, and what, who judges at the point that an MP is yeah. lying? It's a very, it, it's, it's hard to imagine how it goes. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. I saw such vision in you. Yeah. You went through some very For juicy reason, dangers. Yeah, I'll just go, true, true, lie, lie, true. Easy job. Yeah. I think it's even more of a problem in referendum campaigns, because it wasn't just this. Vote Leave went around. Remember that whole week they did of the alternative government? We'll, have mm -hmm. VA, we'll scrap VAT mm. on fuel. We'll have a points-based immigration system. There'll be a unicorn in every home. Every firstborn child will be given £11,000 when they turn six. It, you know, the, the promises just kept racking up, and they are completely and utterly unaccountable for them. And that's why I think it's so important, this idea of a people's vote on the deal, that the people are given some opportunity to check whether the pack of lies that they were told um, in the referendum campaign uh, that haven't been delivered, whether they still want the really quite bad deal that's going to be put in front of them or that they want to change their mind. That's so, of course why it's so absurd when people turn around and go, well, both of the Leave campaigns said that we wouldn't be a member of the single market or customs union. You think, Those campaigns were specifically uh -huh. and officially taking on loads of different groups with loads of different opinions, made loads of different promises, none of which people seem to be too keen to hold up now. So why in particular that one that happened to be mentioned in the daily politics twice, yeah. you know, needs to be carved in stone is a fucking mystery to me. The thing also about, I think, they're, they're using the NHS, mm. which, of course, you know, everybody loves, <laughs> is the fact that, that a lot of Brexiters, the, the, the Tory Brexiters like Dan Hannan, have sort of been floating ideas of sort of US-style in, insurance, and these are, not the, um, these are not the people that you trust with the NHS as it's currently constituted. <laughs> that is so, correct. So it's sort but, of almost, it's like, they just it's just like, what is the most beloved thing. I mm. suppose you know, if they could have got Harry Potter in there, <laughs> they'd have done vote, that. Vote, vote remain. <laughs> vote remain to keep, keep Hogwarts safe. I mean, and they, you know, it was the whole linking of the NHS and 
it crumbling under the weight of immigrants that was sort of so pernicious mm. about it. Um, and, you know, that we have this horribly flawed belief in our country where, you know, immigrants coming over here and succeeding somehow means that we as a country are failing when, of course, you know, it's completely uh, the opposite that's true. And, and you know, when you, when you do focus groups and you speak to leavers and you get their view on immigration and they'll be like oh yeah no no it needs to come down and as soon as you get into the specifics of it and say okay which immigrants nurses oh no 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 not them international students oh no 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 not them teachers oh no 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 not them um you know and we've we've failed to make the positive case for immigration in this country for decades and decades you do see some of those polls where they break down the various sort of you know a very successful businessman nurse everyone's happy and the only one that everyone's against is plumbers what the hell did plumbers do wrong to people in this country that's like the one group they hate and we've said before that basically brexit is making conservatives give up on conservatism um, are they being pushed into or leaping into promises here that are going to kind of bite them later with you know, tax increases or just a general reputation for sort of economic recklessness? Yeah, but I, I don't think uh, they can say whatever they want because all they want to do is get over the line, you mm. know, the, the March 2019 line. The thing is, nothing comes back to bite. I mean, do you remember like a few weeks ago when the Lord sent back all those amendments? They were like, Lords are standing in the way of democracy. There's a tyranny. We've got to reform, blah, 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 blah. What are the people? Then the Lords send back one who don't agree with the amendment, right? And, and on the basis, the moral basis, that it could only have been won by virtue of them making promises, which we are now going to codify an amendment and send back to you. No one fucking remembers the fact that those other ones, they gave up on instantly because, of course, their, their plan was to ask the Commons to have a conversation about these matters and then give in. But even though that was just weeks ago, it is now forgotten on all sides, on leave, on remain... The past fades very quickly at the moment in the heat of the sort of daily outrage that we suffer in the sort of tribal warfare. So they can say whatever they like to get them over this day, the next day. No one remembers. No one picks them up. They get away with all of it. Well, I saw someone on uh, on Twitter yesterday doing a thing where they compared two tweets by that, that prison planet wanker, you oh, know, wow. Paul Joseph Watson, to show that he was a hypocrite. And it was just like, well, you know, good. But honestly... Only two I mean, tweets. <laughs> but it was just like... I, but it was, I phoned it, but, that in. But it, it almost seemed to be designed for a world in which people would go, now, hang on a minute. I will not stand for hypocrisy. Whereas that's like, it's what they thrive on. It's just like, good. You know, it's just that kind of like, that sort of postmodern aspect of the right. And of course, that Cummins uh, strategy, it's very hard to say his name, uh, that strategy was to get people to start talking about this stuff. When he said the 350 million is out of the bus, they, they, he says that their plan was that we then rebut it and all of that is useful to them because it's a conversation that's about payments to the EU. Yeah. Now, that may or may not work. I mean, I don't think he's, the, as we have mentioned before, the kind of strategic genius he's presented to be. But part of their strategy is for us to rebut it. But then, of course, if you don't, you just let these guys take over yeah. the world with their postmodern yeah. absence of truth and that can't be tolerable. I mean, that's the end of the, that's the, end of the enlightenment. But it's like James is like saying, it's sort of a no win it's like if you if you take it on then in it, it, you automatically have to repeat the lie and therefore risk driving it into people's heads mm. and then if you ignore it then the lie happens anyway which is why i can't get on to on board with the idea of just not responding because because that isn't just giving up on one battle or one point that really is giving up on the idea of evidence and reason mm. and causation and that seems to me to be a rather significant sacrifice yeah are you putting enlightenment in the brexit time capsule now <laughs> <laughs> shit you've spotted it already i see what's happening here day cars going right in there that's how it goes <laughs> Moving on, Theresa May's wizard plan last week to promise Dominic Grieve input to the meaningful vote and then pull the carpet out from under him as soon as he and his rebels had voted with the government was described as a straightforward double cross. It backfired somewhat when the Lord sent her fix back to the Commons, as mentioned, and they're debating it now as we speak. Piers backed an amendment from former Conservative Cabinet Minister Lord Hailsham, giving the power to vote on the government's position if there's no deal by 21st of January. They're calling this Grieve 2, the grieving. <laughs> Ian... <laughs> Assuming nothing too dramatic has happened while we're on, on air, um, is it even possible at this particular moment in time to say what state the withdrawal bill is in? It's just, it, I, I'll just, I'll make a twat of myself because it will have changed by the time that anyone listens to this. So there's no point having that conversation. I can't, it, it, there's it's no point. stopped you before. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Making a twat of myself is actually yeah, yeah. part of my job. Yeah, yeah. Why, like, <laughs> Why don't you just... I, 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 you're <laughs> 
Why don't you just make all the possible, predict all the possible scenarios and then through studio electricery, we'll just insert the correct one. Can we, I, I guess that it might be worth going into like a little bit of explanation of what it is that's being fought and how that is structured. Because the one part that they can't take away is that the motion that Theresa May brings back, which will say, this is the deal I've got from Brussels, mm-hmm. is amendable. And there's nothing they can do to change that because it has content. The only things that aren't amendable in the Commons are these things neutral statements. Now, by, if it's neutral, it's because all it does is say that we have debated this thing. It is basically like saying, I, I am talking right now. Now, that must be true by virtue of the fact that it's being said. And it must be true that the thing is being debated by virtue of the fact that they're voting on the thing that is being debated. So on that basis, they can make the other ones neutral, but not the first one. The question about all this is, if MPs reject that motion when it comes back, can the votes that are later put, where the you know, Prime Minister would go, right, we're leaving with no deal, can those be amended? That's where the crunch point is. They can't take care of the first vote. They can, they think, take care of those later votes. But one word of sort of a vague optimism, whichever way the vote goes, there is a lot of legislation that needs to be passed in between Theresa May come back with a motion in autumn and us leaving in March. Now, in that, all of that can be amended. The trouble is, it's so late. You know, I mean, it could be weeks, it could be literally days before this thing happens. So there are other vehicles that MPs could use in some really last gasp, rear guard defence sort of action. You wouldn't want to. Much better to have this going on. But it's not as if it's a complete catastrophe if, if it doesn't work out. Is it possible that Brexit could be delayed, as Dominic Grief suggested? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, delayed and by how much? Well, this is the thing. What we're talking about is a precondition of that happening, but it does not achieve it in and of itself, because, of course, the EU has to agree to that. And not just the not just the commission. I mean, it's every single member state. So we what we're what we're dealing with is MPs being able to say, look, you've got no deal either because we voted it down or because you failed. So we demand that you ask for an extension, either for us to figure out what the hell we're doing or to have some kind of referendum or to try and go back to the negotiating table. I think although it's not certain, that they would be able to get an extension. I do think that there would especially be an extension in the case of another referendum. I don't think that there would be an extension and the EU being willing to go back to the negotiating table. My hunch is that at that point, they would just be like, no, come on, man, now fuck off. <laughs> you know, that's enough now. So I'm not sure that that part would be possible. But, you know, we can only find out if this stuff is secured in the first place. Certainly there's provision in Article 50 to do it, but you do need the agreement of all the other 27 member states. Naomi, what do you think of the consequences of Theresa May's uh, double cross here? I mean, I was going to say, oh, it sort of dented her reputation, but I don't know what her reputation is. I don't know if there's anything left to dent. It's like kind of like, you know, it's like a chink in the side of the the Uh, Titanic. I I think we all thought last week, okay, well, you know, no one will be double crossed again. Not sure that's necessarily true. Um, and as we're recording this, things are changing um, minute by minute in terms of what's going forward. Um, she, this, her, her actions this week won't have silenced her internal critics at all. And I think if they were angry last week, they're going to be even more angry now. Um, what has happened between last week and this week um, that is a bit more concerning is about some of the Labour uh, rebels growing in number um, and there being slightly more of them this week. Um, and that, you know, that, that's, that's, that's really disappointing because Labour are really just storing up problems for the future at the moment. Because um, it, was, it was six. It was six last week. week. I mean, I, you know, I don't even want to say a number on this podcast because by the time everyone listens, we'll know what the exact number was. But we're, coming in to record today, we're sort of worried about um, a slight increase there. And Can you tell me about the psychology of that? Like, where's the... You, we've got, you've got your fields and your hurries. Yeah, yeah, you expect yeah. that. Um, Where are these extra rebels coming from? So uh, we think from um, Labour MPs with very strong leave um, constituencies and they're Labour MPs who probably themselves are a little bit leavey. Um, not as Levy as Kate's, but uh, but but sort of you know tend tend to have Levy tendencies, and they are anxious. Sounds like a medical yeah. condition. <laughs> they, they are, General like Levy. <laughs> they, they they are a bit anxious about you know some of the things that they've been hearing from from out and proud Remainers over the last week, um, and you know, and that's what they've been blaming as 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 why they've been pushed. Um, but we also know that the Tory whips have been cajoling them. Um, is probably a very polite word for what the Tory have been doing to them to, to, to push them over. But sort of in, in terms of strategically for, for Labour, it is so, so, so um, 
annoying it's maddening that they can't see that this is storing up problems for the future for them because if and when Brexit falls in their lap they will have created the conditions whereby people aren't blaming leaving the EU for the ills of the economy Brexit is so damaging as you, you've already said Dorian it's it's led to a situation where we've got Theresa May as a Conservative leader calling for tax increases we've got William Hague coming out in favour of drugs reform you know, these, this is the crazy situation that, that, that Brexit um, can can uh, create for a party. So if Corbyn inherits Brexit, I think, you know, he's facing a situation where he might have to come out in favour of fiscal restraint. Um, you know, like, I, I, it's, it's just maddening that they can't see that what they need to be doing right now is picking a side. Well, we're going to check the news at the end of the show, rush to the phone booths with press cards in our hats <laughs> and see where we are on this. One last bit of Brexit news to catch up on. Last week's SNP walkout in the Commons over the withdrawal bill. Incensed at the lack of time given to vote on devolution issues, the SNP's Westminster leader, Ian Blackford, repeatedly demanded that the House sit in secret, a well-known procedural trick, and when Speaker John Burko <laughs> expelled him from the chamber, the rest of the SNP followed. The government had allocated 15 whole English minutes to the issue. <laughs> the walkout was described as a publicity stunt by Brexiters and the government, but the SNP said Scotland will not be disrespected. Uh, advanced apology, we don't actually have any Scottish people to discuss this because they're in Scotland. <laughs> so with that in mind, Naomi, has the political establishment been guilty of concentrating on the Northern Irish border over Scottish issues? Uh, no, because I don't think anyone could accuse them of giving too much thought to the Northern Irish border. <laughs> <laughs> right? it's the whole fucking oh, it's point. us! Yeah. 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 Um, hence why we don't have a solution. Um, and what's really interesting on that in the last week is the latest Ashcroft poll, um, uh, you know, again showing that a majority of voters in Northern Ireland said they thought Brexit had made Irish reunification uh, in the foreseeable future much more likely. But the real biggie from it all was that um, they asked Leave voters in Great Britain what they choose to do if it's not possible to both leave the EU and keep England, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales together. And more than six in ten of them, including half of Labour voters and nearly three quarters of Conservatives, said they would choose to leave the EU rather than keep the country together. Mm. So this is firmly, you know, the, the Conservative and Unionist Party now effectively becoming the little England Brexit party. Mm. This is the, the, the kamikaze leavers are now saying they would rather sacrifice the United Kingdom and change the Union Jack. Their beloved Union Jack has to change in that scenario so long as it means they can leave the EU. It's like make Britain not again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just unravel it. Yeah, which does make their, uh, their kind of claims of patriotism a little hard to stomach. Indeed. I think a lot of this has been a lot of the Brexit vote, which UKIP tapped into very effectively, and the Tories are courting now openly, is driven by a sense of English exceptionalism mm. and mm. English nationalism. Mm. And you know, it's not unsurprising, therefore, I'm not, to be honest, I don't necessarily think they should have walked out, but I've got quite a lot of sympathy with the SNP when they're given 15 minutes to discuss a whole nation. There's similar feelings in Wales and, you know, the Northern Ireland. The whole question is just a total, total mess. But it, it's the Conservatives going back, speaking to themselves, speaking to those voters they think drove the Brexit debate mm. that they need to peel off to, to, stay, to stay in, in power. And it's going to have quite possibly the most profound change on our country, mm -hmm. literally our mm -hmm. country, not just the economics and what it means for families and people up and down the country, the actual fabric of who we are and what we are as a collection of nations, that's pretty serious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and where does it end? I mean, I just think it ends in humiliation. You know, if you've got a clear majority of the North wanting to join the South in the event of Brexit, and the same thing in the UK, you know, leavers preferring to break up the Union than, than, than stay in the EU. You know, it's how these nationalist fantasies always end, in failure and embarrassment. And then what, you know, in 10, 20 years' time, we want to go back into the EU with a tail between our legs um, because we're one of the, you know, poorest bits of Western Europe as we were when we went into it in the first place in the 70s. We discussed this with, with Kirsty Blackman from the SNP, this idea that even though there were various, that Brexit threw out various economic problems with Scottish independence, that it, it really helps the emotional case. That, you know, the kind of, that inclusive message, which, you know, remember when David Bowie was like, Scotland, stay with us. And it was mm. kind of like, throw your arms around Scotland. And it would be very hard in a second referendum when you've seen how the government have behaved, when the polls show you mm -hmm. how many uh, English people would happily see Scotland go to keep Brexit, it would be very hard to repeat that message of like, 
come on, guys, don't leave. Well, it's, it's, it's weird how it politically in England creates almost no constituency for support for the union. Mm-hmm. Because during the Scottish independence referendum, I mean, I'm on the left, but I believe in the union. I believe in Britain. I'm, I don't I struck like people from most immigrant families. It's very weird to, to associate yourself too strongly with England. You mm. usually associate yourself with, with Britain much more strongly. And I always have. I actually don't have much of an emotional connection with England. Um, it was very hard to find any allies really on the liberal left who were supportive mm. of the union, I have to mm. say, during that process. I was mostly just getting it kicked back at me that entire time. And from Scotland as well, where it was much more, much stronger on the liberal left. Than it was on the right. Now we're seeing the right in England, the conservative right seem to have given up on the union. So by the time that you ever came round to another referendum mm. on these things, you think, where is the constituency mm. in England mm. that would actually support this mm. stuff? And it's very, very hard for me to see it. Um, after Charles Kennedy died, um, Alistair Campbell uh, released, uh, I think, uh, via Twitter, uh, about a discussion that they'd had straight after the referendum um, where I think Charles had called Alistair and said, do you fancy setting up a pro-United Kingdom, pro-European party in Scotland? Um, because they, the, who, mm. who, who, who was there in Scotland making that case? Just what, you know, when, and I rate her as a politician quite a lot, you know, but you take someone like Nicola Sturgeon doing the anti-Brexit points. No matter which way we try to paint over it, all of the discussions that the EU is having with us now are precisely the ones that we would have to have with yeah. Scotland if it left. They're saying, well, if there's, an open, if there's a single market here, mm. then we have to have the same regulatory standards. Mm. You know, the yeah. exact conversation would be transposed. Mm. So it is, it's very hard to come up with a consistent argument from a Scottish nationalist mm. point of view that is anti-Brexit, in my opinion. I do remember when you had Cassie Batman here. I was mm. listening to the show on my earphones the whole time I was just grumbling to myself. Because utter nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, there was no one to hear me. <laughs> but I think it... Um, if as Ian says, it totally affects the way they see Brexit and how Brexit should be resolved. Because I'm pretty amazed that the SNP haven't put uh, got behind a people's vote on the on the deal. Mm. But then you actually remember, oh, it's because they've got their own problems about how and when they put forward Indy Ref two, their sole purpose for being. I don't really hold that against them, but that's their primary concern. Uh, and then there's the part of me that wonders, is the best, as you said, Dorian, is the best route to independence for them that actually England or the government in London imposes a deal on Scotland that they don't like, mm. and then you can open, the, without a, a people's vote on mm. the Brexit issue, that then opens the door to what the SNP would argue is the more important referendum on Scottish independence. Mm. They're in a bit of a bind. Yep. And I was the one that I put the whole of the United Kingdom into the Brexit time capsule as the thing that I think we'll miss because I think this is so bloody likely, you know, that the so-called Unionist Party ends up destroying the Union. Yeah. Well, yeah, as we often say, that neither Conservative nor Unionist. <laughs> well, there's nothing of their of their past and their heritage that they that they want to keep. I mean, the single market is made by Thatcher. You know, the Strasbourg uh, Court is is a Churchillian sort of invention. The, basically, the the current process of the Tory Party is to dismantle all of the ways that we got British values across the across the world, <laughs> the continent, and our own country. They're going to bring back fox hunting though. <laughs> and smoking in pubs. Oh, I'd go for that. <laughs> <laughs> would, that, would that be what would swing you? Yeah. yeah. Oh, just that one. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Our special guest today is James McGorry of Open Britain, currently in the thick of organising the People's March in London on Saturday. And if you're listening on the way to the march, look out for some of us in our Romaniacs t-shirts. James, what do you uh, explain the the purpose of the march and what you're hoping for? Well, it's a people's march or a people's vote. It's it's quite a simple concept, really. Um, We know that there are more more and more people. I I knew the answer. I was just being polite. (laughs) It was a really appreciated opportunity to plug. Uh, I just hadn't expected such an underarm uh, first delivery. Um, I normally do tougher stuff than this. Clues in the side. Yeah, it's nice to be amongst, it's nice to yeah. be amongst friends. Uh, I normally spend my day arguing for drinking. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but look, I think this is a really important moment, actually, because this debate is turning, you know, we're obsessed with it and people in Westminster are obsessed with it, but it is turning a few people off. When I knock on doors or go to focus groups or just talk to ordinary people in the pub or the football or wherever, there is a sense of apathy. 
There is a sense of, get on with it. There is a sense of, and this is probably the most dangerous thing for people like us, inevitability. And that's not that surprising when you've had two years now of the government and the official opposition's position. They might be squabbling over some future customs arrangements that nobody at home understands or frankly gives a shit about. Mm. But what they're hearing is Brexit is done and then there's some squabbling. Now, this is to say that Brexit isn't done. And there are tens of thousands of people who are going to come and make that case directly in front of of Parliament on on Saturday. This isn't some, and this will always be the thing, just because we're doing it in London and Ian's there will be called the elite. Um, uh, I'm actually in Newcastle on the day. Man of the people. Man of the people. He's at a caviar caviar and champagne tasting in uh, in Gateshead. But but look, this is, you know, we've taken a conscious decision this time to make uh, the speakers from the stage be ordinary people, for want of a better, better word, people whose real jobs are affected by Brexit, a farmer or a doctor, a business person, or someone from a trade trade union, and we'll have some politicians. Obviously, they're kind of the people who are going to have to get us the people's the people's vote. But I think it's really important that you know. I, I found it the most frustrating part of the referendum campaign in 2016 was that a co- combination of Nigel, for privately educated, seven-time MP, wannabe candidate, and millionaire Nigel Farage, Boris, jo- eaten educated Boris Johnson, <laughs> eaten educated Paul Dacre, you, you, you name or, or Liam Fox, you name this cabal of angry white middle-aged pretty wealthy men who dismissed anybody who thought differently as the elite. Well, they just won't be able to dismiss tens of thousands of people on Saturday, the majority of whom will be young people, as being some sort of cosy metropolitan North London elite, though they will try. Well, I remember you saying to me that um, that during the campaign, uh, Leave had a very effective stereotype, which was the, the out-of-touch uh, elite. And you said at that point, this was back in March, um, that it was hard to work out how to best characterise the Brexiters. Because even if you thought that they were incompetent and reckless and, you know, quite militantly right-wing, those things didn't seem to sort of add up and that the public couldn't take all three of those things. Like, how can they be incredibly devious and and hardcore but also incompetent? Mm. Uh, Has that sort of evolved at all or have events made it easier to sort of choose a, a line I mean I still we still think we're faced with the same problem they still roll out the elite people in London don't understand what ordinary people in the country think and we are we flit and I don't just mean our campaign I mean all of us on this side of the argument from MPs to people doing this podcast, we flit from they're total incompetent they're a total mess well everyone agrees with that they're sort of dangerous right wingers we already did that bit with what are their real plans for the NHS they're complete fantasists promising these free trade deals that will never mm. materialise we haven't still in my opinion, got the the caricature of them that is hitting home with the kind of voters in the middle who we're going to need to persuade come come the reckoning day. My own view is that the strongest argument, the one that I see gets people nodding along, which is a decent place to start, is incompetence. Regardless of what people think about Brexit, regardless of their views on the NHS or pretty much anything, the one thing people generally think, and particularly people who vote Conservative, is I want someone who seems to have the faintest idea what they're doing running the country, Mm. that they actually know what they're doing and that they're going to take decisions that benefit me and my family. There is a real lack amongst a whole range of people, regardless of whether they're Remainers or Leavers or their other views, that just think this government is not up to the job. And in my view, that makes the case for saying, take it out of the hands of the government, take it out of the hands of the politician and put it to the people, makes that argument stronger still. Now, you were the spokesperson for Britain Stronger in Europe, and you described... Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> you described that night as sort of one of the roughest nights of your life, which yeah. makes me wonder what the, the contenders, the other contenders just, were. I was a Liberal Democrat. Yeah. I worked for the Dems <laughs> yeah. for, Dem- worked, worked for, for 10 years. I have a strong record of uh, picking winners. <laughs> but you went sort of straight from that, I mean, yeah, very quickly to forming uh, Open Britain. What made you want to throw yourself into round two at a time when a lot of people, I think, were, were pretty despairing? Yeah, I just felt it wasn't... I mean, I'm a big believer in Theodore Roosevelt's you've got to be in the ring. Uh, I've spent my entire life, my entire adult life has been spent in politics, pushing some pretty unpopular ideas and causes, not least liberalism and, uh, you know, pro-Europeanism, on, 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 you know, into the public domain. And I don't do that because I think it's easy. I don't do it because I want an easy life. I certainly don't do it for the money. Um, I do it because I believe in these things. And so that's the sort of you know, the passionate reason that I use publicly. And then there's the sort of organisational, operational reason that we had all these assets from Britain Stronger in Europe, the largest database of half a million 
pro-Europeans that's ever been established. 570,000 followers on Facebook. And the way the, the business, the company that, that, that was the Remain campaign was structured, you're faced with a choice. Either throw that in a virtual bin somewhere or continue campaigning for the same ends. And, and that's what we decided to do. And because it wasn't over, right? We, there was a vote. That was all we had. It, we, we didn't have to trigger Article 50. We didn't have to go through this process. And it is still not over. And that's, you know, that's the point about this people's vote. And, and, and um, as James said about the, the need to rally the troops again this weekend with the march. And if you're listening to this on Friday uh, and you haven't decided what you're doing yet this weekend, please, 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 please come to the march on Saturday. That's vitally important because we do need to remind Remainers that it isn't over yet. We can still stop this and we can still stop it through having uh, a people's vote. And James, two years on, without sort of going through the the whole painful post mortem again, yeah. what what is the kind of and obviously politics has changed a, a lot since then as well. Um, yeah. yeah, just a bit. <laughs> what do you? What for you at this point is your sort of main takeaway from that referendum? The kind of the lessons of of what worked and what didn't. That not to go back and rerun it in your head, but that could be applicable next time. Um, I mean, there's so many reasons. I think if you just try and say, if we'd done this one thing, it, you know, we'd sure. have been home and hosed, you, you're barking up the wrong tree. So I've got a range. But the one that I always come back to time and time again that sort of I wish I could have done something differently is we ran, and this is, you know, by date of who was at the top of the campaign, a relatively conservative capital C message. Yeah. Don't risk it. Don't put prosperity at risk. What about jobs? What about the economy? Here's some facts. You know, keep things safe. Don't steady hand on the tiller. Yada, yada, yada. Very similar argument to what the Conservatives ran in 2015, similar argument to what the Conservative-led coalition government ran in 2014 for the Scottish referendum. And what was the key difference? The key difference in 2016 was that all of the Brexit-supporting press, which make up the vast majority Mm -hmm. of the printed press in this country, took the exact opposite view. So you were trying to put forward a Conservative message, for want of a better phrase, without the echo chamber of the right-wing press. So compared to 2015, when the, the Tories say it's going to Salmond and um, Miliband and Sturge are going to cook up a deal that, you know, puts England last, that message was amplified tenfold by the still very, you know, we might not like them, but they are still very powerful and still very influential, and they've got their right to say what they say. That's their opinion. But we did that without the echo chamber. In fact, the, wor- the, the opposite was true. They just turned everything round and repeated the Leave campaign's core message. So... You know, we did that because we tried to win over a specific number of Conservative voters and came up short. This time, I think it has to be much more about our values as a country, particularly around what young people want. I mean, the referendum did well in that it got two-thirds turnout amongst 18 to 24s, which is basically unprecedented. Even Corbyn didn't get that in 2017. But that's still way, way, way short of the 90-odd percent of 60-plus people who are are turning out. We can get 5% more youngsters out, and there are more of them, about, just because that's how... Human beings breed, and the, this 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 whole system sort of works. Um, mm. That for me, you know, but we have got to inspire them, and mm. you know, people like myself have to take responsibility for not doing a good enough job of that last time. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to blame it all on me. Speak to one D Cameron if you can get him on for uh, the main the main man you want to be criticised. That may be a struggle for us. Yeah, well, you never know. He can't be that busy. <laughs> Bang on the door of his shed. <laughs> Offer to ghostwrite his book. I'm already struggling. Uh, 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 but look, I think we need to. I think we need um, uh, you know a message about our future, about what kind of country we want to be, mm. um, that does tackle issues like immigration that appeals to younger people because they're the ones who are going to have to you know live with the whatever decision it is we take they're going to ones who are going to have to live with it the longest and it will be completely different because it'll be project reality right because yeah. it will be you know, the key point we've got to start doubling down on is that there are two options open to the country one you know the the deal that we've currently got with the eu our current terms and then it's going to be what this deal that they come back with so it won't be hyperbolic it won't be all this many jobs that it will be very very factual Uh, and so it hopefully would be a very different kind of campaign from that perspective i thought i I was the one who was throwing underarms (laughs) (laughs) right i couldn't agree i couldn't agree more Uh, i do also think there's an issue with you know it's much more difficult for them to characterize us as the establishment this time round. You know, we are the rebels this time this this time round. We are the insurgents. You can't tell me that the kind of campaigns that we do and Naomi does and OFOC and FFS and all these great people we've got working for us, that we are more of the establishment than a Tory government, Jacob Rees-Mogg and right-wing press barons in this country. That's just not going to wash. Well, because, I mean, to go back to that, that Corbynite line of attack, obviously you said you need to work with Lib Dems, you work with our fellow podcaster Nick Clegg, um, and in the anti-Brexit movement there are Lib Dems and Tories as well as Labour figures. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a cross-party 
party thing. Um, and greens. Did you, and greens. And greens, and I'm, I'm sure from, you know... And Plaid. And everywhere else. Yeah. But did you anticipate that at some point, uh, you know, the likes of Paul Mason would attempt to frame it as a kind of an anti-Labour movement, that there was kind of... There were peers involved or there was, you know, money coming from so-and-so... Um, I mean, uh, yes, to a degree, but I mean, I'm slightly from the, and you know, I'm a big fan, so I'm going to say his name. I'm from the Nick Clegg school of, of politics here. If you're being aggressively attacked from the ultra left and the ultra right, you must be doing something right. I have as little truck with the, like, you know, historic, outdated, ridiculous views of the likes of renter quotes like Bastani and Mason and others who go on Twitter and shoot videos of themselves in their front room and think that we're, you know, going to stop what we're doing because they've, you know, pontificated at length about, about what it is. What it is we're doing I just you know the idea but at the same time we get criticised for being too Labour you know, I've got seven or eight people right. who uh, used to work for the Labour Party working for me. Um, you know, we're criticised for using, for Tony Blair being a supporter, criticised for Nick Clegg being a supporter, criticised for having Tory peers support. You must be doing something right if you're able to if you're able to demonstrate a breadth of support that comes from all across politics and from every walk of life, while at the same time being aggressively attacked by the extremes, the far left and the far right. In my view, as a pure centrist, will always be the extremes of politics. That's why they're called the far left and the far right and you cover every demographic as well unlike the other side which really are very 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 skewed towards the over 65s mm-hmm. um, exactly. so can you just break down because i think some people are probably still a bit unclear on this um what is the pathway to the people's vote we're obviously trying to put pressure bring attention to it put pressure on politicians yeah. what do you think is the most likely legislative route well there's I mean there's a huge number of ways to skin right. a cat here and anyone who makes a definitive prediction is going to look dunce style foolish by uh, by, by, by October oh, uh, that uh, is not a metaphor well, I was gonna, I'm, I'm trying <laughs> see, I was gonna, I'm going to phone every going to phone every guest every week see if they'll bring it in I like see, this chemistry yeah, the, it's uh, like the first third of lethal weapon isn't it <laughs> Uh, but I, but look, I think the clearest, the, the the most obvious route to me is that MPs put their country before their party when they're given the deal in whatever complex motion it is, and just say this isn't good enough for the country. The government then actually only have five options available to them. Try again. Well, why would you? Why would you get a different result? That's not necessarily uh, going to. They can go to the country in a general election. Well, once bitten, twice shy, surely, Mrs May. No evidence that she'd increase her majority. She can seek to extend Article 50. Well, I wouldn't oppose that. You know, I'm not going to say that it's not all within our gift, as Ian pointed out earlier. You have to have unanimity amongst the 27. She can walk away with no deal at all. I still think that is always within the government's gift, but I think it would be such a colossal dereliction of responsibility that someone like Theresa May, whatever you think of her, and I've met her a few times when I was working for the government, is I think bound by a sense of duty, a sort of traditional conservative sense of duty to a country. I do not think she'd be that irresponsible. And the fifth is the people's vote. Now in those circumstances, it seems to me that it looks attractive to at very least Labour rebel MPs, all the other parties in Westminster, but if not to some pragmatic voices in the government, that that is the route out of our uh, problems. You know, literally, Parliament can't decide. The system is at gridlock. People's vote. I mean, there's, as I say, a lot of ways you can do it, but that's my best... And I suppose the other thing that people would be curious about, um, and obviously Naomi with her Best of Britain hat on, it's a very nice hat too, um, is, is involved in this, but what is the... Um, what are the priorities in terms of reaching those... Um, those people who could swing the result next time uh, and sort of almost who, you know, who, who are you prioritizing? What are the messages that you, that you think are going to work? Because there's always going to be some people. I hate the argument that you should understand every single leave voter, because I always think in any political situation, there's just going to be a yeah, rump yeah. of people yeah. that you are wasting your time yeah. on. So and, what, and that, who that, are the persuadables? That group is worryingly large. That's about mm. a third of the population you're yeah. just writing off. And mm. you're quite right to, because you can, li- and I've sat and spoken to these people for sort of three years of my life. Um, uh, I'll tell you one anecdote quickly. When I was doing the uh, did a focus group once, uh, and it was a self declared UK voters. Needless to say, they were almost all uh, old and uh, white. And you sat behind the screen, and it went on for about two hours, and they just slagged off everything you could possibly think of that we hold dear and the, and the country that, that we love. And at the end, the sort of sweating moderator, who was a sort of young guy, clearly not, not 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 sharing their views, said, "Is there anything um, that you people like about Britain today?" Long pause, guy at the back put his hand up, guy, moderator, finally, yes, yes, sir. Um, yes, the past. 
Uh, and, in, <laughs> I, I, and in one sentence, or in two yeah. words, I just thought, right, well, those people are a write-off. Mm. Um, so who are you, Richard? Well, similarly, there's about a third of people on uh, who are like us. Right, they are firmly believe that this is a disaster, and that um, we should uh, have a people's vote and be seeking to stay in the European Union. Now, some people say, "Oh, you can bank those people, and you can always lie." And to a degree, that is true in pure electoral calculus terms. But you've got to remember, these are our activists. These are the mm. half a million supporters. These are people who pay my wages. We're paid by, by by crowdfunding and by small donations online. These are the people who will go on the march on Saturday. These are the people who will write to their MP, who will go and see their MP in their MP's offices. And those people are going to be critical because before we get to a people's vote, you need to win one, if not multiple votes in Parliament. And then you're going to need to pile pressure on MPs Mm. in their own patches. That is what, not aggressively, politely, but democratically, but that is what they'll listen to. What's the opinion of their constituents? And the kind of people who do that, in my view, tend to be in that third. So you're left then, in I think probably alluding to the question you originally asked who are the third of people in the middle well that is really where we now know after the referendum after the work that uh, Naomi and Best for Britain have done after the work that the People's Vote campaign have done we know quite a lot about who these people are where they are and what they're thinking you know it's, no, it's, not, it's not rocket science they're worried about the mess they're worried about the economy they're worried about the impact on their job they're worried about the impact on the NHS You have got to make the case, or not you, we collectively Mm. have to make the case to them, and social media is Mm. the game here, if you're spending your money anywhere else, you're wasting your money, in my view, um, that that this isn't a done deal, and that is the single most biggest barrier, as I say again and again and again, you know, before you can get people thinking about, oh, is this Mm -hmm. actually the right thing to do, you need to get past the barrier that they don't think they've got any role in this, Mm. when in fact they could have the ultimate Mm. role. Until we still, when we, you know, we've been trying this for a year, year and a half now, and we're still not there, particularly with those group in, uh, people in the middle who don't necessarily follow every twist and turn of yeah. this debate like we do. Because once, <coughs> from what I've seen in the conversations I've had with people, once you get over that initial barrier, people are much more open to a debate than even they were in 2016. Because, in a way, people have had a much longer time to think about this. You know, when did people really focus on I mean, I only started working for the Remain campaign in December 2015. You know, and I was one of the first in the door. You know, there wasn't a long build-up, whereas people have had two years now of thinking about this, worrying about it, being concerned. I find it's a lot easier to have a debate, but as I say, critically, before you can have that debate, you've got to persuade people that the debate is worth having, that something can be done. What's the stuff that seems to shift that kind of soft leave... Uh, position the most in terms of subject is it NHS is it trade um, I mean people aren't going to like this um, but it's not a positive vision I have to say mm. it is people have concerns about the economy particularly about their job and their familial income and then about the NHS where they have I would say widespread but fairly non-specific um, <coughs> concerns the one other point I'd make is on trade is doing all the heavy lifting uh, for the Leave campaign now. Uh, people instinctively like this idea of global Britain. Of course we'll be able to do trade deals with no downsides. People are queuing up, you know, uh, the Indians, Australia. It's doing all the heavy lifting. People like it, they instinctively believe it. I'll give you one more sort of focus group anecdote, which is not normally how I uh, judge myself. But we did it uh, with eight, there was eight uh, self-declared soft Remainers. So people who voted Remain, but are now a bit, you know, uh, or oh, is it really, you know, what's the mm. point? Why, why are we still talking about this? Um, and we showed them uh, the the Leave argument on trade and the remain argument on trade uh, and did it fairly so you know with, with all the spin so that it could be a proper judge and seven out of eight and this is bear in mind the remainers picked the leave argument hmm. it wow. is of all the things i sort of uh, encourage people with better minds than i who have platforms who write very good pieces perhaps looking at one here i can't think of anyone in front of me mr i done um, it is an argument that needs demolishing this idea yeah. that we are suddenly going to be able to walk away from our biggest trading partner and people are going to be rolling out the red carpet with no strings attached trade deals that replaces our trade with the EU is bollocks. So Newsflash uh, listeners, um, as we've been recording, we've had um, texts coming through and we've been tracking Twitter and we've just seen uh, that Dominic Grieve has conceded and is going to be voting with the government. Oh, uh, this afternoon, so by the time you've heard this, uh, then um, you already know all of this, but we're getting this 
as we speak. So, yeah, what, what does everyone think about that then? James, what's, what does this mean for us as campaigners? Well, I think, you know, when you campaign for something and you don't get exactly what you want, you're always a bit dis- disappointed, aren't you? Um, I would urge people not to get too disheartened here. I think we should remember how far we've come. Mm. And, you know, uh, there'll be a tendency now for people to criticise... Dominic and you know but he'll know whether we had the numbers or not there was the Labour rebels problem we we, we discussed um, you've got to remember how far we've come and Open Britain Best for Britain all of these campaigns campaign for Dominic's Amendment 7 back in Christmas yes. if you remember that passed there was a lot of chat about the government trying to take it away they've not even tried that mm. Grieve tabled another amendment in the, in the Commons two parts of that have been accepted we now do appear to have some sort of fudge I've obviously not read it I'm slightly yeah. flying blind here on the third part which mm. would depend on people's interpretation of parliamentary mm. procedure and the speaker. So look, I think we've come a long way since where we were before Christmas, yeah. um, and so I wouldn't be too downhearted. And the final thing that I'd say, and you know, Dominic, uh, I know, um, angered a few people on his sort of extreme wing of his own party at the weekend by saying this. If we are successful in the arguments we want to make about rejecting a bad deal, about a people's vote, Parliament will find a way. They always do. There is always a way for MPs, quite rightly our elected representatives, to side what they debate and to give themselves a proper proper say. The great irony of this is throughout all of this, our Parliament is sovereign, remains sovereign and will always be sovereign, regardless of the Brexit question. So look, I understand there'll be some disappointment, uh, but I would urge people to look at the positives about how far we've come. And look, the you know, we might have lost a small part of this battle, but the war is yet to be really fought, and we can still win that. Ian, this was not. We can obviously paste it in later where you predict this is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but this That's was not the note that I just passed you. This, across yes, the table. Yeah. this is not what you predicted would happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a dunt. dunt. Well, it's happened. What's going on? Okay, so it's we had this conversation with Raf Bayer last week where he said these are not your standard rebels. You know, you look at Dominic Grieve, but this is not the kind of behaviour he's used to. And my, I presume that this is what we're seeing. I mean, I'm catching up on the speech as, as we go. That he's, you know, he seems to be criticising uh, the way the tabloids have behaved. He seems to be criticising the way that uh, he has been treated and other rebels have been treated. But that he seems to be going for this sort of form of government concession, which I do not see how it is a concession. So the government concession was made in a statement by David Davis as he stood up there. And it's basically an interpretation of Standing Order 24B. Standing Order 24B concerns what a neutral motion is. Now, I do not see that that holds. It's basically saying the Speaker can decide this stuff. I have to say, over the course of the last week, I've been talking to very much, much, you know, more sort of constitutionally literate people than I have, you know, people in the Hansard Society, people, you know, all over the place. They, this is not their interpretation of how that works. They mm. think that if it is just saying that this debate has taken place, then it is unamendable. I do not quite understand why he seems to have folded on this, unless it is to say the Prime Minister is making it an issue of she's going to fall over this. So then as a law to her, I have to I have to give in. However, if that is his argument, then there is no way that the Tory rebels are going to hold firm when a motion comes back with mm. the Brexit deal. Right. Mm. Because of course mm. that is what they're going to say. And of course the government is going to say that any... Remember we said earlier that motion can be amended. There's nothing they can do to stop that. They will say... I, I can, you, can, you can almost write the script now. The government will say, if it is amended, we can't ratify the withdrawal agreement. Because this is the thing that we've got here. So if you amend this, it's non-ratifiable. They will make that argument. So they'll say, basically, although you can amend it, we're saying you kind of can't. And then the same thing will take place. If the criteria is ultimately we will be willing to rebel up until the point that it damages Theresa May, then they're not ever going to rebel. You know, so I, I, there are mechanisms. There are mechanisms in place to introduce amendments after the thing. That's absolutely right. But I, I, I am more dispirited, I think. I, I am quite concerned by this because it doesn't bode well for how things are going to turn out in the autumn. Uh, so, I mean, the, well, the stuff that's coming in right now um, that we're seeing about Dominic Greaves' statement is him sort of wondering whether collective sanity is gone. Um, he seems to be suggesting that we, everyone has gone mad. And there's a st- Is he saying this? Well, sort of. He, I mean, I'm, I'm reading it from the Guardian Live blogs. He right. says there's enough madness around to make him madness is in quotes to make him wonder whether collective sanity has been destroyed. Um, there's also, I mean, you know, you'll, quote. you'll hear <laughs> you okay, hun? <laughs> you'll hear sort of Subri will talk quite a bit about MPs that are scared to talk because they're scared of their own physical safety because they they get these threats, and we don't know how much of that kind of atmosphere plays into what's going on. But again, I have to say, look, we, we've spent. We, th- there's always these two groups the whole time that we've been sort of doing this podcast the last six months of the Tory rebels 
and the Labour front bench. Mm. And, we, and we constantly, they, they both need to hold yeah. firm if this thing is going to work. And we got to the point two weeks ago where the Labour front bench, you know, we were saying, you know what, it's really hard to imagine them doing anything but voting against it. And almost as soon as that happened, mm. the Tory yeah, rebels yeah, yeah, yeah. seem like they're folding. Yeah. And it's... It, it's it's I, I have to, it's hard to imagine. This does not bode well. What 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 this why this concerns me is because I think this is government's way of keeping no deal on the table. Uh, I think they you know that's that's what they want. Um, I think there is still every chance that that that's their their game plan. So yeah, we're going to have to keep a very close eye on this. Because their best argument, of course, for the deal that they're going to come back with is that in fact the only argument they're going to have is it is better than no deal. Because no deal is, for reasons that we do not need to go over again on this, so it is calamitous for this country. So they can come back with the shittiest deal you can possibly imagine. They can say we're going to cut off the left foot of anyone between the age of 43 and 47, and it would still be a better deal than falling out of the EU with nothing in place. So, of course, they don't want to give up any of this stuff because it is the only proposition that puts their efforts in a favourable light. Part of what I think Grieve was trying to do originally was not so much deal with what was happening then, but influence the way in which the government was behaving between now and that motion coming back. And by stacking the structural elements in that way, it was going to have some control over the government's actions. Now, I fear there are mechanisms for it, but it would have been much, much, much better to have it in the way that he was setting it up. And it's dispiriting to see that the Tory rebels don't seem to have, you know, the the commitment to see the stuff through. But are you saying that actually the Tory rebels are under really unpleasant amounts of pressure and have enormous amount of flack? Obviously, you want them to have a spine here. But were you suggesting earlier when you were talking about Anna Subri as well? There's actually yes. a lot coming their way. Yeah, look, and they're not exactly, and they're not. I'm not going through the stuff that they're going through. You know, when the papers come for you, they're there talking to your neighbour. Yeah. They're there talking to an ex-girlfriend. They're there talking to people that you knew in school who are going to say stuff about you. Don't underestimate friends. You know, yeah. people that you see on Saturday nights. Don't underestimate the kind of strain that that puts on your personal life. The kind of just the viciousness and the all-encompassing nature of what it would mean for your life. Of course. And I'm not, you know, but when I say and, things and, like and spine, and it's and too aggressive. And let's, I not, and let's not be, you know, undersell it. We, we have heard that it is death threats. It's not simply raking up muck from your past or fabricating stuff, um, you know, via your, your, your personal life. It, mm. You know, we're hearing that people are actually having their lives threatened and potentially those of their family as well. Yeah. So it is not surprising that it, that it goes this way. There are mechanisms in place. There are other bills coming up next month. You know, there's the trade bill, there's customs mm-hmm. bill that we're going to look at. has much firmer stuff on the customs union. But just looking at the evidence of having the numbers in Parliament to stand up to this stuff, when, as Jen has been saying, everyone apparently accepts that the government's making a shambles of it, it is, it is not, I have to say, enough to give you confidence about the fact that the Commons can stand up to this stuff. I think we have to point back to, Ros, to the stuff that Ros said last week, of just like the Commons does not look like the place that this thing is going to be stood up to. And the, the events of today seem, at the moment, to sort of back that up. The worrying thing is there is no... Re- at some point, you know, if we are to be successful in what we're talking about, the Commons has to. There is yeah, no exactly. way of getting anywhere, whatever way you skin yeah. this cat, without winning at least one and probably multiple votes in the Commons. I'm slightly less pessimistic than Ian, uh, but it's obviously an, an, an opinion, in that they're under such pressure at the moment, pressure from the press, pressure from number 10, pressure from their own constituency associations, from their own voters, you, you, you name it. And it's a big deal. These aren't natural rebels. Dominic Grieve is nobody's idea of a, <laughs> of a rebel. He's an extremely nice and, and clever man mm. and an honest man and an, a man of integrity, in my view. But he's not, a, he's not a natural rebel. Before Brexit, he'd never rebelled against the Conservative Party once. That's just not in his style. Um, but I think when put, there will be a push-comes-to-shove moment here when the deal is on the table and every MP from whatever party will have to look themselves in the mirror of the morning of the vote and say, my kids are going to ask me about this, my grandkids are going to be asking me about this, how did I vote when the future of the country was at stake? And for me, that is the moment when I think more of them will be more likely to be stand-up and counted rather than going over the top and all the shit that will bring on your head for what is a fairly archaic, uh, when all is said and done, uh, procedural argument. That's a very good and reassuring argument because ultimately it's not just about the pressure. The pressure will stay the same, mm-hmm. but the thing that you're accomplishing will be much, much more significant than a procedural technicality yeah. of just how yeah. this kind of stuff it, can be presented. It isn't, but that's no, how it's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If only there was some kind of event this weekend where you could yeah, go yeah, yeah, yeah. surrounded by fellow <laughs> Remainers, <laughs> vent your frustrations in a cathartic but family-friendly way. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, I can't, I, think, I of can't think of anything, but if you will turn up at Pall Mall at 12pm, uh, <laughs> uh, you, you, might, you might find something that you really enjoy. <laughs> 
We're nearly at the end of the show, which means it's time to choose something to go in our Brexit time capsule. This is where we store the things that we're going to miss if we leave the EU, the things we might need if we're out on our own. James, you're our guest, so you get to choose. What uh, would you put in the calendar? I mean, I'm sure loads of people have already done this, so it's not you know very good room 101 uh, stuff. But um, mine would be uh, free movement in the way that I understood it as a young person. Mm. Now, I wouldn't do this now, obviously. Uh, I've got a job for a start. Uh, but when I was 18 and when I was 19, I was a student. I didn't really have a lot to do. I just packed my bags one morning with a few mates. And in, when I was 18, I went to work for Ibiza in the summer. And when I was 19, I went to work in Crete for the summer. And all I did was book a flight with some mates and I turned up and I got a job behind a bar or touting tickets and it was two of the best summers of my life and I think if you deprive that to you know and believe me these weren't you know the kind of people who do those jobs are not all sort of rich elite from from, <laughs> from London believe me um, if you deprive the ki- kids you know in two or three years time of being able to do that it doesn't matter if they want to go to Ibiza or Crete or whatever they want to go to Germany or France that would be it, that was one of the most richest memorable periods of my life and to deprive the next generation of that for some perceived um sense of Englishness uh, is a nothing short of a travesty. Thanks James and thanks for coming on and Pleasure. we will see you on Saturday. Yeah. For our European language clip we've got listener Anna Gordolo with a snippet of Veneto, the language of northeast Italy. It's not an Italian dialect, it's a language in its own right. So we've got pub quiz hmm. trivia as well as Ramoning. Eh, inglesi, inglesi. No sarebbe lo meglio di restare coi diavoli che conosce che di andare coi diavoli nuovi. And that's the end of the show. Now roll down your car windows and turn up the speakers for Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, our theme tune, and a roll call of our Patreon backers. Right, yes, hello, um, uh, and uh, goodbye. Uh, thank you very much to Tim Ostler, Chris Arrowsmith, Michael Hewitt, and Andrew McLaughlin. It's tack. From me, you're going to be doing question time. You can take it over from Dimple <laughs> Me. The lady in the red jumper. Like, oh. Sorry, Naomi. Anyway. It's tack from me to Laura McNeil, Tom Phyllis, Ben Legris, and Alessandro Mancarini. And thanks for me to Amanda Wallace, Neil Gilfeder, Tessa Smith, and James Butler. We'll see you next week and hopefully see many of you at the march on Saturday. Romaniacs is presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. Studio production was by Sophie Black. The producer was me, Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.